paralyzed and he couldn't walk. Wow. That would be rough, right? That would be rough. But sometimes things get off to a good start in, in life and you, you just revel in all the joy before you. And sometimes you get up and you get ready to do something and you realize that your preparation has not been all that it should be. For instance, I got up and realized I had covered up the scriptures with my notes. That seems like a bad idea to me. Because this story of the paralytic is uh, something I want to go back to several times because it highlights for us some of the things we've been thinking about and dealing with as a congregation. It has something to do with our emotional intelligence. And it has something to do with how we understand ourselves in light of all that's going on in our lives as we seek to move forward as God's children. And without the power of the scriptures in our lives and what they mean for us, we will fail in whatever it is that we attempt. For instance, Jesus, in this passage of scripture, (laughs) said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? They had been talking and thinking about that. They didn't know that Jesus knew that, though. They didn't know that Jesus was reading their minds and their thoughts. What a shock it must have been to them to hear that even though he was not part of their conversation, he might as well have been. And sometimes we get to looking at that and we think, man, I want to be just like Jesus. But this morning, I need to tell you that the title of the sermon is, But We Aren't Jesus. We aren't Jesus. However, we tried to do many of the things that Jesus tried to do, but in the end, that truth is always there. We aren't Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about today, and that's why I've chosen to have one more sermon in this kind of uh, ongoing messages about who we are and how do we can build ourselves up into a stronger individuals and stronger people before I go into some stewardship messages that are coming up about our service and about how we respond to the grace of God in our lives. Because I just wasn't ready to go on. And I'm hoping, for all our sakes, I'll be ready to go on after this Sunday. But I must tell you, I have four pages of notes, not two, not three, but four. But I got an early start. So hang on. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? One of the first things and one of the first lessons we learn as children, hopefully in Sunday school and in church and at home, is that Jesus sees what we do. Jesus hears what we say. Jesus knows what we're thinking. That always was a scary thought to me when I was growing up as a child. Jesus knows what I'm thinking. Ooh, I don't know that all my thinking is really worthy of Jesus' time. I'm not so sure that I want Jesus to know what I'm thinking sometimes. In fact, I'm certain at times I wish Jesus did not know what I was thinking in some ways or another, especially as I was growing up, and not only then, but yes, even today in the ripe young age I've attained to. Because you see, I am not Jesus 
and you are not Jesus. Now, I, I, I know I've already said that three or four times. I want to say it one more time at least and probably several more times because I want you to get clear in your head that you aren't Jesus. Because the first thing that's helpful to us when we come to worship is to remember that we are not Jesus. We need to come to worship ready to receive Jesus so that Jesus can make us better than we are. But we are not Jesus. We're not going to be Jesus. We can be Jesus-like in some of our actions and some of our thoughts, but we'll never be Jesus. Now, the closest I come to being Jesus is when it comes to reading Sally's mind. Most of the men are laughing at that, especially those who have been married a long time, right? Because I do practice mind reading a lot. I'm guilty. It was disturbing to me to learn that all humans practice mind reading a lot because I thought I was special, but not so much. Everybody thinks they read everybody else's minds. Because when we look at someone and we take in their facial expressions and we take in their presentation of themselves, you might say their attitude, we kind of know them to some degree. We experience them, and then they say things, and then sometimes we say things, and then five minutes later, you can't tell if we were ever listening to one another when we started, because in the saying of things and in the reading each other's minds, sometimes we get in a dangerous cycle. Sometimes we chase rabbits down trails where we don't need to be because we think we're chasing a rabbit and we turn the corner and all of a sudden we've run into a grizzly bear and that's scary and sometimes however when we're chasing we are the ones who turn into the grizzly because you see we've mind read we've come to a conclusion and now all that's left is for everybody else to understand what we understand and therefore everything will be better that kind of sums up the first two years of our, our marriage between Sally and I. We were both mind-reading each other, and we were both hearing the words of our parents in our ears, and we were both interpreting one another perfectly, we thought, and then we began to learn we weren't. And so today I wanted to share a few scriptures with you besides this story in in Matthew, that's so poignant, but also in Mark 5, 25 and 31, Jesus is mingling amongst the crowds, and they're just thronging to be close to him because everybody he touched is healed. And in the midst of this mingling with the crowd where everybody was being jostled about, you can just imagine kind of the excitement and the noise level and everything else that was going on in their place. It was like being in the middle of, the, of a bowl game, you know, and down the field when all the noise was surrounding you and engulfing you because that was their world, and it was just excited. And then Jesus said, who touched me? What? The disciples said, what do you mean, who touched you? I mean... You're being touched by hundreds of people. They're all crowding in around you and jostling you about. What do you mean, who touched you? You see, there was a woman who had had a bleeding that could not be controlled for 12 years. And all the wise people of her day had tried to help her that could not. And she was in the middle of that crowd. And she was thinking, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. And the scripture says, when she got in that crowd, she actually did touch his garment, that immediately Jesus was perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him. He was so self-aware of who he was 
and what he was capable of, that when someone touched him in a healing way, not just in a thronging way, but when a person of faith touched him in a healing way, he was aware that the power of who he was, the very son of God, went out of him and healed her. Such self-awareness is an incredible thing. In the midst of adulation, in the clamor for his touch, he actually felt someone who was not there just for themselves, but who was there because they had faith in him as the Savior, as the healer. Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. Jesus' ministry is picking up steam in this short little book. Everything moves really fast in the Gospel of Mark. And the Scriptures tell us in chapter 12 that the Pharisees and the Herodians were trying to trap Jesus by giving him a test that he would surely fail so that the people would quit following him. In the midst of that, the Scripture says again, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, he was reading their minds and their hearts. And he knew that the test they were giving him was not about who to pay the tax to, to, to Caesar or to the spiritual authorities, to God. He knew it was all about their hypocrisy. He knew that what they were saying was more a reflection of their attitude toward him than anything else. So he could answer it in an intelligent way. That gave them nothing to condemn him for. He knew their hypocrisy. He was mind reading, if you will. And then again in Luke 7, 11, in chapter, beginning with verse 17, there's another story where the scriptures say, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, did such and such and such and such. Knowing their thoughts. Man, I wish everyone was like Jesus and could read everybody else's mind perfectly. But we aren't Jesus. We don't read everyone's thoughts perfectly. Even though we don't, it doesn't stop us from mind reading constantly. In fact, your whole life is an exercise in mind reading. So what I hope to do today is to give you some parameters about what around something you're already doing, even if you don't give it that name, you are figuring out people around you. You are figuring out what people mean. Now, I'll admit, I saw a a gruesome thing this morning on TV, just totally gruesome. And it kind of grossed me out. I'm being a big sports fan, but this really grossed me out. What it was, I think it was a replay. It was happening while I couldn't just sit down and watch TV. I was getting ready to leave. I liked the noise on. And it was this, this big controversy going on about a play in in a baseball game not involving the Rangers and it was a play that they showed over and over and again they were just flabbergasted by it and it was a play of a man coming into second sliding now when you're coming into second base sliding and especially if you're in any kind of an important game or a game is close you have what job to do as baseball lore goes that means you're supposed to make it difficult on whoever is going to take the throw at second and send it on to first to interfere with him as much as you can within the rules as much as you can within the rules. What you see on that picture is you see a totally defenseless infielder whose back is to the runner receiving a throw coming in and the man gets to the edge if not out of the base pass. I don't know. I didn't watch it that closely. I could just hear them in the other room. But he hit that man going full speed and you could see he was really aiming at the man and not the bag. 
And he didn't begin his slide until he was already at the bag, and he broke the young man's leg, which could be a career-ending injury. And I watched that play, and I quick, looked quickly and said, I didn't, see, I didn't hear about that. It wasn't our game. No, it wasn't our game. It was another team. And as I was looking at it, my first thought came, and some of them were echoing it, and I was doing a little mind reading too. That guy's a dirty player. There's a problem with me thinking that because I don't know that man. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know. I know he was trying to break up the double play. I know that because that's the way the game is played. But I don't know if he never intended to slide out on time or if he just got carried away. I don't know if he intentionally angled off the bag to do anything to stop that throw, irregardless of what the consequences were. I don't know that. But my mind immediately goes, I don't even know which team he was on for sure. I, know, I think it was a game between Kansas City and uh, St. Louis or St. Louis. Or Who was it through? It was a mess in Dodgers. Awful kind of play to look. But I don't really know what was in his mind. And neither did the announcers who were making all the prognosis for what was going on. But I know how it affected me when I saw it. And then I had to start thinking about it. And at first I was just mad that somebody would do that to hurt another person. And then I got more reflective and I thought, well, we really need to find out before he's punished, what was he doing? And then I need to look at it very carefully to make that decision. You see, as we communicate, we are all creatures that do such a thing. We communicate. And we were all created that way. And we all do communicate in healthy ways at times, but we also all do not communicate in healthy ways all of the time. Communication can be unhealthy as well as healthy. Communication can go in unhealthy directions because of what we say, how we interpret the behavior of others, and how we think about others that we're in relationship with. One of the examples that a book that I'm going to quote from today, and I'm going to quote from it several times, is one of the, my books that I really enjoyed in my life, and it came several years ago when I was pastoring in Salina, Texas, and we used it for a marriage training course for our young couples. It's entitled Love is Never Enough. You can still buy it online. It's written by Aaron Beck. It's a long, hard book to read, but it's more than a book about how to counsel young married couples. It's a book about how to communicate with everyone because, you see, communication is a huge problem in marriages, yes, but it's also a huge problem in the workplace. It's also a huge problem in congregations with committees. It's also a huge problem in extended families. It's also a huge problem between parents and their children. It's also a huge problem between grandparents and their grandchildren. Communication is difficult, and it's tricky, and it's complicated. And because it is so essential and normal to all of our lives, we oftentimes don't think about how well we are doing it, especially when we're in the midst of a very important conversation to us, and we have a point to make, all right? Remember the last really big fight you had that 24 hours later you both realized it was really over nothing. But what happened is you started communicating in unhealthy ways. And when you did, you ended up in conflict. And this is what happens to many marriages. It has a lot to do with how people think, how they respond, who they are internally, and how, they, how healthy they are emotionally 
because it affects their ability to listen and to hear and to respond in communication with others, not just with their spouse, not just with their children, but with everyone. One of the great examples of communication gone awry is called negative thinking. I'm going to read you off a few things that characterize negative thinking. When high expectations are thwarted, people tend to jump to negative conclusions about another person's state of mind and the state of their relationship. This happens again with children at work, in committees, at churches, and certainly in marriages. Second major point. Mind reading, we all do it, but we aren't Jesus. We don't do it perfectly. Because of that, we jump to faulty conclusions. And when we jump to faulty conclusions, it typically starts a negative cycle. When somebody has said something to us that has hurt us, especially when we've had high expectations in a completely other way, then we tend to jump to these kind of conclusions and we tend to attack or withdraw to the extreme because we think we know another person's state of mind and also what it means to the relationship. Let's pick something safe because it's really quiet out there. You're talking to your wife. My wife is sick and in bed this morning, so let's don't talk about her today. Let's see, which couple would I like to pick on? Made you a little nervous, didn't it? Chad's safe, too, because Sarah's home with sick grandkids. Yes, we have disease at our house, and we can't get rid of it because some people keep sharing it with each other. And now I have sick people at both of the houses, and I have no sanctuary, so I'm sure I'll be sick too soon. And no, I'm not speaking that into truth. I'm just saying that's the way it goes. No kissing, hugging with them down here for me. Trying not to breathe whatever other breath when they're around me, that kind of thing. But it's hard after a week or two. Communication. I want to talk to you about something really important. Okay, says the man. I don't think that we're really behaving in the way we used to behave. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would like us to really change things. Okay, says the man. Would you uh, like to go to a baseball game instead of a football game? No, that's not what I'm thinking about. Is that all you ever think about in sports? No, just on Saturdays and Sundays. Or You don't really care about me. You really love sports more than you love me. No, I don't love sports. I love you more than I I love you. By the way, there's a game next week out of town. Some friends invited us to go. (laughs) See, you really don't love me. My mother said you were that way. (laughs) Our marriage is a disaster. Now, this is a made-up story, so hopefully it's not about any of the innocent who are here today. But it happens just that way over a million topics. Because he didn't stop and say, is this a really serious conversation? Because he was kind of watching a ball game already when she started the serious talk. And so he was really listening while he was kind of watching 
and thinking about something else. Men, you just really shouldn't do two things at once when your wife is trying to talk to you and she uses the word serious or I really need to talk to you about anything or something happened that was important today. That is a clue for you. Fool! Do not do two things at once. Don't be looking at your phone. Don't you be doing it. Don't be looking at that TV. And she's got a two clickers. Like we have two clickers in our family. It's really troublesome. Now there are two controls to the TV. So, you know, I think, I'm sure we're going to wear out the TV. And sometimes conversation is just like that. Somebody's trying to go somewhere and the other person is only half-heartedly trying to go there too. I know that doesn't have anything to do with you, but it could have something to do with your in-laws, your children's spouses or something that might be helpful to you. Negative thinking and mind reading and jumping to faulty conclusions get marriages in trouble. They get churches in trouble. They get family circles, extended families in trouble. Because you see, we're not Jesus. Misunderstandings arise whenever we start reading people's minds and we don't take steps to be sure that they are saying what we are hearing. Sources of anger and conflict are caused by misconceptions and miscommunications. And many times they are much more important in what is being said and what is being heard than the actual event themselves. How healthy a relationship is has a lot to do with not just what is said and what is done in a relationship, if any kind, but in what is trusted between those in relationships. Because if you really have trust in another person's place, and if you're really in a healthy place yourself, you don't hear things and immediately jump to negative conclusions. You don't hear things and immediately use it as a stepping stool to assume all kinds of dangerous things about a relationship that's very complicated and, and has very many moving parts just based on one negative conclusion. Unhealthy marriages, where one or the other is suffering from low self-esteem, not using a lot of self-awareness, can cause people to get really lost. It works in school, in relationships with your friends at school. It works in relationships in your neighborhood. It works everywhere. It is real. And lastly, perceptions and interpretations often become bigger than the actions themselves. There's a way to get beyond that kind of communication and make communication more helpful. It's called cognitive therapy, and that's what he's writing this book about, about and based upon those principles. In this book, he is attempting to use his education and understanding to train people to, and I quote, to have a more humble, tentative attitude about the accuracy of their mind reading and their resulting negative conclusions. 
Communication requires us to check for the accuracy of our mind reading and to check for alternate explanations for the actions of others. No, dear, I really do love you, but I've already used my allotment of words for today that has become my new saying about the last month and a half. I say it too often, and I'm trying to stop it. But sometimes at work, I'll also say the same thing there. I'll say, I'm sorry, I've already used up all my words today. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Knowing I'll have to talk about it tomorrow and probably before I can get the person out of my room. But sometimes we just feel that way. It doesn't have anything to say about the importance of what's going on. It doesn't have anything to say when I say that about how I treasure the person I'm talking to, whoever they are. It has enough, has something to do about me, where I am inside at that moment in time. And if I'm aware of that, if I'm self-aware enough that to know, the other favorite phrase around is I tell people, be careful today, I feel dangerous choose your words carefully and they usually suggest why don't you go play golf both at home and at work and why don't you stay and play all day until you don't feel that way and I usually take their advice and leave because you see if we're at a place where we know we're not healthy inside and we get into important discussions we're apt to miscommunicate we're apt to misunderstand and we're apt to, based upon misperceptions, make interpretations that are not accurate. Principles of cognitive behavior are these. One, you never really know the state of mind of another person. Their attitude, thoughts, and feelings of others that are locked up inside them are complicated. And though you may be very good at mind reading many people, you could never be quite for sure, especially in areas that, that might be stressful for them or for you, that you have a full understanding of their state of mind. That's why you have to ask them. It feels like to me that you're angry. Are you angry at me? People can respond to that. And that's so much better than when you're feeling that going, I see, you're just mad at me and you're taking out your troubles on me. You oughtn't to do that. That's not right. One of those feels better than the other, right? But oftentimes we do one when we know we should be doing the other, right? Because we're not Jesus. Secondly, we depend on signals. Everybody gives off signals. But they are frequently ambiguous. And ambiguous though they are, their signals inform us about the attitudes and wishes of others. But right after that, we use our own coding system, which may be defective, to decipher signals. This gets me in a lot of trouble at home. Because I do, when you counsel, you do pay a lot of attention to everything. From the looks of the eyes to the body postures to the, what people are saying to their tone to what the look in their eye between their countenance as a whole. You take it all in because you've been doing it a long time. And so when I go home and my wife and I are having a discussion and I say, I see that look. She usually has something to say to me. And it's usually something about that look was not there. 
And I never seemed to have my phone on camera at that moment. If only I could take her picture one time, I could solve 40 years of struggle. Of course, taking her picture at that moment could also be deadly. Because it's just hard to have a relationship from the grave, you know. But I know that little squint-eyed woman, when she squints her eyes, I know she's mad. And she'll say, I'm not mad at that. I say, oh, no, I can tell you're not mad, you know. Not wise to counsel your wife that way, by the way, gentlemen. Practice that in your office with somebody. But the reality is that once we got a decoding system going, we think we know more than we sometimes know. And as we get older, we tend to forget that those decoded messages might have changed. And what we believed in 1945 might not be true in the year 2015. You think? I'm sorry. I think I expressed my feelings a little more than I intended to on that sentence. But when we get unthoughtful and unreflective about what we're saying and what our coding system and decoding system is, we act like really old people who are really judgmental. And being really judgmental is really poor Christianity at its worst. I did intend to say that. And I think this sermon is all about that. I have another sermon that I was afraid to preach, so I didn't write it down. But it is going to be how I end, and I'm in a hurry to get there. Depending on our state of mind, at a particular time, we may be biased in our method of interpreting others' behaviors. That is how we decode it. You think? The degree to which we believe that we are correct and knowing another's motives and attitudes is not related to the actual accuracy of our belief. I want to say that again. The degree to which we believe that we are correct in knowing another's motives and attitudes is not related to the actual accuracy of our beliefs. Well, you know how teenagers are. No, why don't you tell me? Tell me how teenagers are. Tell me about all those generalizations about how they're unruly, they don't really listen, they don't really think, they're too young to really know anything. All they do is mess up. You just have to live with them through those teenage years. Okay. Some of those things are true some of the time about teenagers. You know what? All of those things are true also about the older part of our population and the middle-aged in our population and everybody else. You get my point? You need to get my point. I need to see you doing this. Okay? Enough of you did that. Most of you are still refusing. I get that. And I'm interpreting it. And I'm decoding you by your action or lack thereof. Now, I may not be right, but we all know that I am the pastor and I am right most of the time. <laughs> that goes with the paycheck. It says your name, and underneath it, it says, and you're right most of the time. And we need one of those every day to remind us of how ridiculous is the thought that the pastor is a perfect mind reader or knows what you're saying 
or is in the right position emotionally to hear what you're saying on any given moment, any time of day, about any set of circumstances that might be going on. The other day, I went to visit a man intentionally in the hospital. He's not a member of this congregation. I knew the man is dying. I knew he didn't want to accept it. And somebody asked me from another relationship in another congregation, would I go see the man? So I went. The second time I'd been, the first time he was out completely. He was there. His wife was not there. It was perfect. We had about an hour's conversation. And he told me how he was perfectly rational while he wasn't. And he told me about how good things would be and how he was a fighter and everything would be all right. Could I please convince his wife? And I'm thinking, no, probably not, because she's been listening to the doctors and you haven't. And you're not okay. You're dying. And, uh, but I'm really not your pastor, and you gave me no opportunity to talk about it with you, so I'm leaving. And then I got home, and one of the family members that wanted me to go and visit with the person texted me back, thanking me for going, and then said, but I got to tell you, his name is Dean, not Dennis. <laughs> so I got the D right. In the midst of everything else going in my mind, and me taking out uh, half a day to drive downtown Dallas to make that hospital visit. And when he said that, I, when I read that on my text, I was like, you idiot. Not that person, me. You idiot. You, you looked at it three times before you went into a room to be sure you remembered his name, this guy you don't really know. And then I went in there and called him wrong all day long. He didn't seem too offended by it. He gave me the benefit of the doubt because it was somebody who didn't really know him. And the people who had asked me to go laughed about it and said it was funny. If you knew him better, you would know why it was so funny. But he said, it's all right. Don't worry about it. Thank you again for going. And you know what I did? I said, self, you messed up. God forgives you. And sounds like that man might be able to. And so did the family that sees you. So it's all right. You see, they had a healthy understanding of who I am. And they know from years of experience with me that I didn't go down there to call the man by a different name intentionally. But once you get a name wrong in your head, you say it once, it just keeps repeating, right? I could have gone to someone else who would have got on the email and written everybody they knew and told them how this pastor came to visit me and stayed an hour and never got my name right. Well, they don't put the first name on a lot of hospital doors. They just put the last. Stupid me. I should have looked at the phone again. You would never do anything like that, right? You would never blame someone for making an honest mistake simply because their mind might be scattered, even if it might be scattered at a time when you needed it to be focused. Because I'm sure you act out of your places inside you where you're very emotionally stable. I told you it was a lot of notes. And I am at the end. And I don't particularly like the ending because there's something I need to say. And I've been deciding whether I was going to say this something or not. But let me sort of make one more, pie, one more point, and then I'll get to that. And mind reading can be dangerous. It can be correct or not correct. It can be partially correct. It can be causing, in the negative sense, very positive relationship growth. Or if it's done poorly, it can cause unnecessary upset and a false sense of security on the other side of the bar. Seeing and hearing are things we see, but... Our state of mind, our attitudes, our feelings, and our motives are just as real as their words, gestures, and expressions. We know we're going to do it. We also are going to do frames. You know what framing is? Framing is, another, is a fancy word for uh, bias. 
Biased is what I do with my grandchildren. I come home, I've been gone, Sally's been keeping them for two or three days. It's time to go to bed. Micah's not doing well. And she's been bragging about how well Micah's been doing. This is Thursday night. For the first, actually, this is Friday night. For the first time, I met them that week. I just let them have grandma and grandchildren time. Okay, I just didn't have enough words left to do that every night. So I stayed home and, and slept and got some rest, had some quiet. It was kind of nice. Went over that night, and I hear her and, and Micah just going at it and squalling and walling. And so I go in. And I said, why don't I put Micah to bed? And Mike said, no, sassy. And I said, no, you need to go check Miller because he's got temperature, I'm pretty sure, and I think he's getting sick. And that's your thing. Why don't you go do that, and I'll take care of Micah. Micah, who's like Rachel. Rachel, who's like Doug in some ways. So she goes out, and Micah's firing out of that bed. No, sassy. I said, no, sassy. Papa, pick her up. No! No is right. Don't you hit me. No, Sassy! Nope. Sassy's got to go take care of Miller. I'm taking care of you. No! We're sitting in that chair. Come on. We sit in the chair. She continues to squall. I say, Mikey, you might as well quiet down because you're not leaving the room. You're not leaving my lap until you get quiet. All of a sudden, everything dries up. She looks at me and says, Bed. I said, okay. I walk over and I put her in our bed. You want to get in bed, right? Yes. I said, okay, lay down. Close your eyes. Baby, here's your baby. I'll just stand here while you go to sleep. Turn her head the other way. Hold the baby. <laughs> Smells up all that stuff. That baby says, ugh. You know, it's, it's hard being two-year-old. It's like sleeping under the water. <laughs> but she went right to sleep. After she knew, she couldn't do anything else. Because Micah has a frame. And her basic frame is, if I get loud enough, and if I act mad enough, a lot of times I get in my way. However, I have another frame. If Papa says, then I might as well shut up. Because Papa ain't going to change his mind. Framing. It's huge. How you look at other people, what you think about them before they say anything is huge. Bias creeps in. I knew the day that I went to a meeting having told Carrollton Christian Academy that they were going to need to either come under our authority or relocate that the moment I shared that with them, I knew that not only would I be somewhat of an enemy in some ways, but I would be the focal point for their anger from then on and all the things that were going to happen. I knew that. So I was prepared to live in a frame that was going to ever be that way. So during that meeting, while they explained to me many things, uh, not things I hadn't heard before in other churches over different issues, but things that were meant to hurt and were meant to do something to me, of which they did none of that. I listened. I tried to correct their perceptions. 
But their framing and their bias at that point was simple. I was sent here by the bishop. It's always somebody sending, you know, especially in the Methodist church, to close the school. Now, here's the truth of the fact that I didn't try to explain to them. The bishop hardly knew you had a school. You're one of two in Methodism, I mean, for goodness sakes. It's not on his mind. When he sent me here, he didn't know anything about the school, and neither did I. I didn't come here to close the school. I knew that, but I also knew because of how threatened they were that they were never going to see it any differently. I knew that. So why should I get mad because they're upset? So I didn't, and I won't. Because, you see, I know why they're doing what they're doing, I think, reasonably so, and I understand that they're hurt. That's why I'm so thankful to read in the paper where they've got a new location to to rebuild a school of their own. Great. That's wonderful. We're excited about that. They may not think we are, but we are. I don't know of a person who's not. And you say, preacher, it's been quiet about the school now for three or four weeks. Why are you bringing it up? Because I want to be sure that you're at a safe place before we leave such a topic as that. I want to be sure you're at a safe place in what you're thinking about the other major issue that's come up. We have now faced in rapid succession two major issues that can disarm a congregation and cause them to move to their worst spots. Sometimes it's because we're mind reading and we think we know what we do not know. Sometimes it's because we believe we need to know everything there is to know even though we don't need it. Sometimes you just have to trust the people who are in places of authority to lead a congregation. The people that you put on the staff parish relations committee have met tirelessly, almost nonstop, and communicated tirelessly about both of those issues, as have the executive committee. They are aware of things that should be said and things that should not be said to larger groups of people. And you have to decide whether you're going to trust them or not. That's up to you. We have to decide how we're going to respond regardless of what frame somebody puts upon us. I like to frame things too. I love Aaron Johnson, and I don't apologize for that. And I'm not going to apologize for that now or ever. If somebody may think I don't love Aaron Johnson, they'd be sadly mistaken. I love the teachers at CCA. I love the fact you had a school for 30 years. 30 years after a four-year preschool start. The fact that it was not healthy and could go on in this place at this, this time is a separate issue for me. And it should be for you. But you must not take a frame of reference that affects your heart. And you must not always let your heart rule your mind or your mind always rule your heart. You have to keep attention between the two. You must not let old prejudices enter into your thinking about situations as complicated as what we're facing, as disappointing as they have been to all of us in regard to the, the relationship between what is a proper relationship between an adult and a minor. Sometimes we get locked in the past, and then when we talk, we hurt people. Be careful what you say. Be sure, to the best of your ability, it's based on truth and love and grace. Leave the deciding to the people who need to decide. 
And at this point, that's not us anymore as a church. Not in that situation. It's in the hands of authorities, and that's where it belongs. While I've been here, I've watched you handle many things as your pastor. Every now and then I get teased. And every now and then I'm just not even teasing. People just say, well, I'm sorry you had to come and do this. And I'm like, uh, well, I don't think y'all planned this, did you? I don't think so. I don't think anybody planned this. But it's what's here. It's what needs to be addressed. That's what we'll do. And we'll do it to the absolute best of our ability as people who love other people and love God. And as long as we frame each other in that context, any conversations we need to have, we can have, and they can be healthy. But the minute that we say casual things based upon old ideas about what we think without checking them to see if that homespun wisdom is as wise as is the counsels of others at times, we might be making a huge mistake in starting a cycle that is hurtful to the church. We can face every situation that's before us, and we can do it well. And I believe we have so far, to the best of our ability. Are we perfect? What's the title of the sermon? But we aren't Jesus. Remember that. It'll always be true. For as long as I'm here, you'll know the whole staff is not just like Jesus because I'm here. I'm not perfect. Never have been. Never claimed to be. Except to my wife. <laughs> Fortunately, I know the frame she sees my life within. And I hope it's a frame that you can have for each other too. Because we are a family and we are tied together. And our words either reinforce that family feeling or tear it down. I love you as a congregation because you've been through a lot. And I really feel that I need to say this last thing. The party we plan to hold, you plan to hold, many of you, in this sanctuary 12, 14 years ago, is about to begin. We are turning around from the things that we've been struggling with for years in some cases and turning to new things and new ways of thinking and doing. They're going to make us that growing, thriving congregation you've dreamed about since you started your decline in the early 80s. We're not going to stay who we are. But we are going to become who God has called us to be. And the best has yet to come. But it's coming. Stand, I want to pray for you, and then we're going to sing. And while we're singing, if you're here today and you need a church, and you say, man, I don't know if I want to join that congregation. What's going on here? <laughs> Healthy stuff in the midst of struggle is going on here. We'd love to talk to you about it over lunch. Lord God, we thank you for your love and your grace. As we sing, may our hearts be united. And may your spirit be clear. For we love you, Lord, and we know you love all of us. Bless us with your presence today and throughout the week, we ask in Jesus' name.